You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, we have something a little different. It is a tale from antiquity, involving sorcerers and sea monsters and magic potions, and all sorts of other cool stuff. This is the story of Shu Fu, a Chinese alchemist and explorer who lived around 200 BCE. Shu Fu is more legend than fact, but some believe him to be the first person from China to have reached the island of Japan and become its first emperor. It is a fanciful tale, albeit a short one, as our knowledge of Shufu is very limited. But no problem, it is a good story, and we will have some fun with it. Let's do a little housekeeping to start today's show. First item. I recently did a podcast with the wonderful people at Map Corner, Royfield Brown and Claire Astbury. Map Corner is a great podcast that is heaven for map nerds. We chatted mostly about explorers and exploration, and had a really good time. So check it out. I put a link on our website, explorerspodcast.com, as well as in the show notes. You can also do a search for Map Corner on your podcast app. Enjoy. Second item. I want to remind everyone that the Explorers podcast has active Twitter and Facebook pages. I post photos and tidbits about the Explorers we are currently covering, relevant exploration news, and anything else I find of interest regarding exploration and history. Again, I will put links in the show notes as well as on our website, or just do a search for us. We'd love to have you join our little community. Third item involves a couple of notes regarding today's episode. I want to stress that all the stuff we are talking about today happened more than 2,000 years ago, which means everything should be taken with a healthy dose of caution. Also, let us remember that I am trying to pronounce Chinese and Japanese words today, so forgive me if I mangle anything. So that is it for housekeeping. Let us get started with the tale of Chinese explorer Shu Fu. Our story takes place right around 220 BCE and starts in China. Here is a little background. In 221 BCE, the first imperial dynasty of China came into existence. This was the Qin dynasty. The dynasty was founded by Qin Shi Huang. He hailed from the region of Qin, hence the dynasty's name. The area that Qin Shi Huang came to control was huge, nearly 900,000 square miles and 2 million inhabitants. It was an absolute monarchy with a powerful centralized government and a formidable army. The capital was Shenyang, which is today in the Shanxi province along the Wei River. Some of the advances introduced in this time were a massive national road system and the fortification of the northern border, which would eventually become the Great Wall of China. There was also the standardization of weights and measures, which helped to boost the nation's economy. 
And while the Qin dynasty would be short, it set the foundation for the imperial system that would last for over 2,000 years. So, Qin Shi Huang was the most powerful man in China, but his success made him many enemies. He survived numerous assassination attempts and grew more and more paranoid over the years. At the same time, he reportedly grew obsessed with immortality. This manifested itself in several ways, one of which was the construction of the famed Terracotta Army. This consisted of more than 8,000 life-sized warriors, 130 chariots, 670 horses, 40,000 weapons, and many other non-military figures such as musicians and acrobats. All of these would be buried with Qin Shi Huang in order to protect and serve him in the afterlife. And with that, let us introduce the star of today's podcast, Shu Fu. Shu Fu was born in 255 BCE in the state of Qi in northeast China, right across the Yellow Sea from Korea. Qi would be annexed into the growing Qin Empire in 221, which means Shu Fu would have been about 34 years old when this all happened. Nothing much is known about Shu Fu, other than he would become an important court official. He is described as a sorcerer, alchemist, wizard, and mystic, and the emperor would come to trust him. In 219 BCE, the ever-paranoid Qin Shi Wang, who was in his early 40s, challenged his court magicians to find a solution to the question of immortality. The answer, the emperor was told, was the elixir of life, a potion possessed by immortals living on Mount Pengle, on an island to the east. The island is usually called Pengle as well. This story, the elixir of life, or some form of it, is a tale told in virtually all cultures, and is often called the philosopher's stone in the western world. Anyhow, the emperor had a brilliant idea. He would send one of his trusted court mystics in search of the elixir of life, and that man would be Shu Fu. So, the big question was, where was Pengle? Well, legend said that it was on the eastern end of the Bohai Sea, which is in an area on the east coast of mainland China and in a northwestern extension of the Yellow Sea. It is not far from the Chinese coast, at least when you or I look at it on a map. It's maybe a couple hundred miles, but to the men and women of the era, this may have been 10,000. So the emperor would appoint Shu Fu to go find this elixir of life. So, what happened next? How many ships and men was Shu given for this great task? Where did he go? What did he see? Well, to be honest, we really don't know any of that. We only know that Shu Fu departed in 219 BCE and would be gone for many years. He would ultimately return, but with nothing to show for his efforts. Shu would be brought before the emperor, who demanded to know what had happened. Shu would say that he had been thwarted in his efforts to reach Pengle by a great sea serpent. He needed more men, including archers, if he was to get past the monster. So, what really did happen? Well, we can only speculate. But the main theory is that Shu tried to accomplish his mission, but let's face it, he wasn't going to find any island of immortals. It just wasn't there. Thus, he came back after several years and fed the emperor, who did not have a reputation as a particularly nice guy, a tall tale about a sea monster blocking his path. Another theory is that Shu Fu tried to sail into the open seas, maybe even the Pacific Ocean, and ran into storms. He and his men then attributed these storms to whales and other great fish that they saw. It's important to understand that the ships the Chinese had at this time would have been poor ocean-going vessels. What they had was made for rivers, and, at best, sailing along the coast. Heading out to sea, out of sight of land, was not something the ships were built to do. So the emperor had no elixir of life, but he was still obsessed with all that kind of stuff. So he said to Shu Fu, Okay, you need more men? Need archers? Name it, I'll get it for you. And thus, in 210 BCE, Shu Fu departed China with a great fleet of 60 ships. The number of people involved in this enterprise 
are all over the place. I have read as many as 3,000 men, 2,000 women, and many craftsmen. Plus, there were 1,500 boys and 1,500 girls, all virgins. This virgin reference was probably just the ancient writer's way of saying they were children. The fleet also carried several years' worth of food, farming implements, seeds, and medicine. Also, the emperor gave Shufu a division of imperial archers to defeat the sea monster that blocked the way to Penglei. And thus, Shufu and his fleet would depart from China and never be heard from again. Well, let's be clear. The emperor was never going to hear from his court mystic, but we actually have information about the voyage of Shufu. So what did happen? Where had he gone? Many people speculate that Shufu knew from the start that he wasn't coming back to China. I mean, he had said that he was going to get the elixir of life, and his first attempt had been a failure. He couldn't go back to the emperor and say, sorry, no luck, a second time, he would pay with his head. Thus, Shufu got everything he could from the emperor and headed east, hoping to find a nice place to hide out. And what he found, according to legend, was a hospitable land of, quote, flat plains and vast waters, end quote. This was Japan. The Chinese supposedly landed at a place called Danzu, but where that is, no one really knows. It might just be another name for the island. Now, where in Japan the fleet did land is unknown, but the most commonly referenced location is the Key Peninsula in Honshu. This is on the island's eastern side, about 50 miles from modern-day Osaka. Another story has him landing in the south of Japan, at a place now called Moradomi. The legend says that Shu set out a floating cup, and wherever the cup landed was where he came ashore. Today, in Moradomi, there is a place called the Nakita Shrine. There you can find a juniper tree that is estimated to be 2,200 years old. Legend says that the tree was planted by Shu himself. Still others believe that Shu went up the eastern coast of Japan and landed near Mount Fuji, believing it was the fabled Mount Penglei, the home of the immortals. Well, no matter where Shu landed, he would be in for some disappointment. There were no immortals and certainly no elixir of life. Thus, unwilling to return to China and face the wrath of the emperor, he decided to simply stay in this new land. At this time, the Chinese would have found the people of Japan transitioning from a hunter-gatherer society, called the Zhoumon period, to the Yayoi period, which is roughly equivalent to an Iron Age society. Shufu and the Chinese would have possessed superior technology in virtually all aspects of life. Without much difficulty, they would easily have been able to establish themselves as a major power player, maybe the major power player, on the island. Now, let us again stress that much of this is just legend and myth. We can't take any of it too seriously. But the whole Shu Fu not returning to China because he was scared of the emperor is certainly a possibility, and perhaps it had always been his plan if things didn't go well. Thus, when the Chinese got to Mount Fuji and found that it was just a regular old mountain without immortals or magic potions, Shu said, let's just stay here. But another possibility, if any of this is real, is that Shufu went to Japan with the specific goal of colonization. I mean, look at the stuff he took. Thousands of people, including children, farming materials, craftsmen, soldiers, all the stuff you need for a nice colony. Maybe the whole looking for the elixir of life story just wasn't true, or maybe it was just one goal of Shufu's. Maybe he had found Japan on his first voyage, and after reporting back to Qin Shi Huang, the emperor decided to send a large force to start a new colony. Qin Shi Huang was, after all, an aggressive expansionist, so it would not have been out of the question. And who knows, the elixir of life story might have just been told to simply hide the expedition's true motives. Anyhow, there is some stuff that supports the idea that Shu Fu did arrive in Japan, and he did settle there. 
The arrival of Zhu coincides with the transition from the Jomon period to the Yayoi period. Was this a coincidence, or did the appearance of the technologically superior Chinese spur innovation in Japan? One of the major advances on the island was in agriculture, an area that the Chinese would have brought great expertise to. Also, the Japanese make great leaps in improving the silk, fishing, and papermaking industries around this time. These are things the Chinese could have helped teach the Japanese. Some of this is so widely believed that, in some parts of Japan, Shu is worshipped as the god of farming, medicine, and silk. He is called Jofuku in Japan, and today you can find shrines and statues to the man. Plus, there are multiple tombs of Shufu throughout the island. Now, the other thing I want to mention about Shufu is the speculation that he did not just land in Japan and set up his own power base, but that he is actually Jimu, the first emperor of Japan. Again, this speculation relates to the explosion of technology and agriculture that happened right around the time Shu arrived in Japan. Jimu typically dates back to 5 to 600 BCE, but like many of the early Japanese emperors, they are generally considered to be mythical in nature. Some have speculated that Shufu actually became the island's first emperor. He had, if you remember, a legion of professional soldiers. They would have had weapons and training never seen in Japan to date. Shu could easily have set himself up as a warlord, made allies, and then expanded and consolidated his power, eventually coming to rule the island. Now, this theory is immensely far-fetched, and there is virtually no evidence to support it. It is a fanciful tale, but almost assuredly not true. But again, it's fun to speculate. Now, the last thing I want to mention about Shufu is the possibility that he never actually reached Japan. He sailed off from China, got lost somewhere, and just disappeared. And the Japanese people just figured out better farming techniques and advanced technologies all on their own. And while that is not a very fun story, it is probably closer to reality than the guy becoming the first emperor of Japan. But hey, it's fun. I want to note that Shufu is remembered in many ways, outside of being a farming deity. He shows up in various forms of literature, including novels and comic books. Shufu is even a character in the Marvel comic universe. Now, before we wrap up, I do want to head back to China and see what happened to the only other person in our story, Jin Shi Huang. Well, even after the departure of Shu Fu, the emperor would continue his obsession with immortality. As noted earlier, he would construct the mighty terracotta army to protect and serve him in the afterlife, and he would continue to send out his alchemists and agents to discover the secrets of everlasting life. Then in 210 BCE, the emperor would become ill and die. Some speculate he was taking mercury pills made by his alchemists. They thought the pills would extend life or even grant immortality. We don't know if Qin Shi Huang actually did this, but it certainly would make for an ironic ending of the man. In reality, the emperor, who was 49 at the time of his death, likely died from catching a virus or a cold, but we will never know the exact truth. After the emperor died, one of his sons would become the ruler, but he would be dead in a few years, and the Qin dynasty in shambles. By 206 BCE, imperial China would be under the rule of the Han dynasty, which would last for several hundred years. So that is it, the story of Chinese alchemist Xu Fu and the discovery of Japan. I hope you enjoyed this story, which was a little different than what we normally do. The story of Xu Fu is more fable than fact, but hey, it was fun, and I hope you had a good time. Thank you again for listening. I will see you next time. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. 
If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.